welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Matt Bruckner, an associate professor of law at Howard University School of Law. My guest tonight is my colleague, Annabel Rosario Lebron, who's here to talk about his new article, Evidence's Me Too Moment. Annabel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Matt, for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to have you on the uh, on the podcast to talk about your new piece just coming out in Miami. Um, and so for people just uh, tuning in thinking, um, you know, what, what are we going to talk about today? Can you give them the sort of, uh, you know, elevator pitch? What's uh, what's your article about? So the, the article talks about how victims of sexual gender violence, right? And that includes uh, sexual harassment, rape, uh, are discounted, their credibility is discounted, and how they suffer from what you can call a credibility deficit, right? They're not often believed, and why this happened, and how the rules, even though they seem neutral in terms of any cause of actions, right? They, in this case, are prejudicial, specifically ones that use previous acts of truthfulness from the victims. So it's trying to show how neutral rules in the evidence world can affect um, redressing claims, especially for victims of sexual gender violence. All right. So, yes, I think that's a super interesting topic, right? How these facially neutral rules can import sort of biases uh, into our system. And so, uh, as you know, uh, evidence is not my forte. So can you explain what is the current rule uh, and how uh, – well, let's start there. What, what, what is the, the current rule? Yes. So, um, so, you know, the credibility of any witness is always relevant to a case, right? Uh, and that includes different types of evidence regarding their credibility, right? You can have the opinion about someone's credibility, right? Or the reputation about someone's credibility. You can also have previous acts that that person show that they might not be credible. Like I lied in a loan application or I said a lie to one of my colleagues, right? Those are previous acts of untruthfulness, right? That can be used to uh, challenge the credibility of the witness, right? And attack that credibility of the witness. Or you committed a crime um, that involves some kind of credibility or one of the particular crimes that are set out in the rules that are also serve the purpose of attacking your credibility. So on, on that realm, right, you have this rule that applies to every case. Um, however, we know that people don't depart from the same place, victims uh, in this type of cases don't depart as any other witness in terms of their credibility. So for example, women are not often believed uh, because they're women, right? And there are many studies that have shown how we disrupt women just for being women. The same happened for victims of gender sexual violence. In the case, their plausibility of what happened. So imagine things that you could hear when someone says they have been a victim of a rape or sexual harassment. People might inquire as to what were you doing? What did you say? Uh, did you interpret that comment correctly? And those are way of showing that we have these credibility biases against uh, these witnesses. That that might not happen in other type of cases. Uh, if you were robbed, people would not like necessarily say, "What were you doing? Why were you robbed?" Right. 
Right, right. And so the, uh, the sort of premise is that uh, certain uh, victims of crimes are just less likely to be believed um, uh, because of their status as, for example, uh, a, a woman. Um, uh, but you also write, I think, that, uh, that impeaching a witness because of sort of specific prior acts of lying is predicated on the notion that uh, people who lie in one context would lie in another context. Um, you suggest that that, yes. that sort of that predicate, that sort of that basis for that argument uh, has been proven wrong. Um, did I read that right? Yes. Yes. There, there have been many studies, right? And uh, it, it will come to your mind, probably Michael Cohen saying, I lie, but I'm not a liar, right? And, and people, for, for people, that is a shocking statement, right? How can you lie and not be a liar? But in reality, when you look at the studies, they show that we might lie in many contexts, and all of us have lied at some point in our life, mm -hmm. right? We have told a particular lie. Does that mean that if I go to court, I will lie? Uh, not necessarily, right? Did... Um, by me lying on the loan application because I want to get a car or I want to get the house, does that mean that I would lie when I'm testifying about that something that happens to me, right? right? And uh, there's, a, there's a wrong premise, right? There's a, this common sense idea that we have that if people lie, they're more prone to lie in the future. But that's not necessarily true. Uh, however, we have imported that as a standard for our legal rules. Uh, and the, the rule itself has been uh, criticized heavily because of that, right? There's no proof that we can ascertain that a person has a particular characteristic or trait for truthfulness, right? It's difficult to say that a person is truthful because truthfulness depends on many contexts, right? And those are contexts that we cannot necessarily measure during a right. trial. And so that's that's the problem that your article sort of uh, engages with, right? That uh, certain victims are not believed uh, because of their um, uh, their gender or their uh, sexual orientation or um, um, and that um, that the sort of notion that we could that not all people who have lied in the past uh, are sort of um, just, you know, um, uh, liars in all contexts, right? So that's uh, what I understand your paper is, um, uh, that's the problem it's engaging with. So how, how do you engage with it, right? What do, you, what do you propose to do about these problems? Yeah, so when we think about this, this is something that if, if you think about the rule by itself, right? It's something that would apply to every context in every type of cause of action, civil, administrative, or criminal, right? It, it would apply because we have an issue with the idea of a credibility trade. However, when we look at certain identities, right, and thinking about the trustworthiness that we give certain people, where women are prejudicated more than other groups, victims of sex or gender-based violence, right, are uh, experience more biases against this. And you can see a correlation between uh, these biases, right, or this discounting of their testimony, and how that translates into conviction rates, for example. So there's uh, robbery, it's likely four times more likely to get a conviction than a rape, right? Just in, in, in 
for for the type of crime that it is, right? Uh, you also see other narratives, right? That we think about this type of uh, claims as he said, she said type of, of, of case, right? But we don't necessarily describe other types of cases as that, right? Like a robbery. It, it might be a he said, she said kind of thing because there's no other evidence besides the victim and the defendant, right? But we don't tend to describe those as that type of cases. However, sexual gender-based violence cases, we tend to put that that way. And we prioritize also the man who's usually the defendant in these cases by giving him the credibility in a way, right? He said, she said. So from the get-go, we're discounting just by how we position the parties, even though the victim is the one that initiates the whole process. So when we think about that, and then we examine deeply the effects that that have in, in the process, right? We have victims that they don't come forward because they know they're going to face these biases, right? And they are going to be confronted about past instances in their, in their lives, right? So they decide not to go through the process. And that's something part of the Me Too movement has brought attention, right, in the last couple of years, showing that um, victims don't come forward because they know that they're not going to be believed right? If you want to be believed, you have to make sure that other people experience a similar type of harassment or sexual violence so that you can see there's a pattern, right? But if it's an isolated incident, right? If it happened once, they know that they are not going to believe. And also that their life is going to be propped into, like, what are the things mm -hmm. that you have done? What is your credibility? And the, our system doesn't really encompasses that idea, right? It doesn't play with this type of like functional evidence. Since you're sitting that on the stand, people are already judging your credibility. And the, the, the rule system is not looking at that specifically. And what I propose is, well, in, in, a, in the best scenario is, let's get rid of this rule, right? Because it really doesn't, there's no science or no support for showing that that you have lied in the past would actually show that you're lying in this case. But the reality is that states are very profound in this rule. They they this rule is very rooted in the evidence system, right? So eroding that rule takes more than just saying the science is wrong, because our common sense tell us that if you have lied, you will lie in, in, the, in the future. So I tried to examine through the papers, right, how all the states are dealing with these issues. And interesting, there have been states that have abolished this rule uh, and say, we're not going to take previous instances of untruthfulness as, as evidence that you have a character for untruthfulness. However, they all have, in a way, chisel. Uh, an exception for cases of sexual gender violence. And they have said, well, that's the rule except for these type of cases, because if there has been a prior case in which you were not able to get a conviction for whatever reason it was, right? You can bring that to show that the victim in this case might not be credible and open the door for that, right? Um, so showing how ingrain that idea that this 
these type of victims, right, are more prone to lie, right? And there is also a long history of, of showing how women have been, and I, and I refer to women because the majority of victims in these cases are women, but victims also that suffer sexual gender violence that might be male might be associated with feminine traits, right? And what matters is how these people are being read or perceived by the people who are judging right. uh, the, the claim. So in those instances, what you see is that the history shows us that women have not been believed if they were not chased, right? If, if you can show that women were sexually active, they were automatically not believed. And we still have the remnants of that in our system, right? Especially uh, in this type of cases. In, in, in other cases, we require before corroboration as we did in brave cases, right? That you needed a corroboration requirement when we know by itself that these type of cases, right? People don't rape other people usually in public, right? It's a very private event. Uh, uh, the same is uh, they require from outcries that the victim can, that will come forward uh, instantly. And you saw that also uh, with the confirmations of Kavanaugh, right? One of the arguments that President Trump made uh, was that the doctor did not come forward when she was 16 uh, as a way to show that she might be lying in this instance, right? Why did she wait so long to tell this story? Why didn't her parents take this to the police? Why didn't she tell anybody? And that's our also remnants of a system that we have been trying to eradicate, right? That were premised on women not being believable. And that's pretty much the idea of how to deal with this rule, right? Um, so what I propose is, let's look at this rule, right? And since I, looking at how the states have dealt with the previous act of untruthfulness, what I said is, it doesn't seem that we're going to be able to eradicate this, right? So the, the other solution is to provide certain type of shield to this and make the rules more um, consistent on how they treat evidence for character for untruthfulness, right, in the different types. So when you think about opinion, character, or reputation, that requires that you have many instances of uh, an untruthful act, right? Not just only one, right? So in a way, it shows that there might be a character there. So that evidence might be more reliable than just one instance, right? As Even though we know science tells us that it doesn't really matter. Um, so what I do is let's rank this type of of evidence, right? And think a way of making it more difficult for attorneys to access that. Because part of what attorneys are doing, defense attorneys, is I can claim that this not, just didn't happen just because I can actually impeach the credibility of the, of the victim, right? If I'm able to show that she has a propensity to lie, I just can claim that this didn't happen, and that would actually work out. And you, there have been studies uh, in domestic violence context showing that that is actually uh, one of the preferred strategies by defense attorneys to use, right? To just rely on impeaching the character for truthfulness 
of, of the victim, right? And accessing that narrative just by, by show. Right. And, then, and then just denying entirely, right? So like, that's what I, the article suggests that, you know, sort of somewhat surprisingly, the sort of defense strategy is often uh, not to sort of uh, nibble at the edges, just to, just to like call the, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the victim a liar and uh, and rest with that strategy, right? Yeah, so it's it's just so I opened the the article with a, a a narrative, right, of what will happen in this type of cases, right? A typical case, uh, and I I went through um, different files to see what attorneys have been doing, following some prominent cases as to what been the strategies, and you can you can see what you do is to plant a seed of doubt, right? So that at the end you can argue that the victim is a liar, right? And if you cannot believe all this, and that actually works perfectly in these type of cases because there's some inconsistent behavior that psychologists have heavily documented, right? That victims might uh, lie at the beginning, right? Especially thinking of domestic violence. They might want to protect their privacy and not tell everyone and tell that things are okay to to their family or to their friends, right? So that inconsistent behavior is also used against the victim, right? Or that she did not come forward promptly. Uh, that's also used against the victim. Or as it happens, right? As, and, and as we have seen recently in, in the confirmation hearings of Kavanaugh, that you might remember more vividly the events as time progresses rather than forgetting them, right? Because they were suppressed at the beginning and now you're recovering those memories, right? So that is also used against the victims, right? So playing that in the context of also showing you have lied for whatever reason that is not related at all to the cause of action. Like I said, I can use, I, I lied in an application 20 years ago and I can use that to show that you have a character for untruthfulness, right? So imagine how disconnected that is to what is actually being tried, right? And how remote it can go, right? So it has no limits, really, basically. So I can use any act that show that you have lied in the past to show, to show that. So how can we restrict that? So let's put a higher standard, right? Right now, the standard, it's whether the evidence will be uh, the, the prejudicial effects of the evidence will outweigh this probative value. So let's revert that, right? So if it's really the probative value and the prejudicial effects are quietly balanced, then let's not use that evidence, right? Because it, it actually tends to skew things and confuse jurors and judges more than it helps them, right? Because it really doesn't show whether this person is actually lying about what happened in this precise instance, right? It show the only thing that it proved is that that person lied in the past of something that is unrelated to, to the case. However, if you have some evidence that this person might be lying in this instance, or that this person has been used uh, in, in some sort of a pattern, the judicial system, right? To bring these claims falsely, then that's something that makes it more relevant, the lie, right? Of those previous acts of untruthfulness, right? So what I suggest uh, as a way to deal with that is let's have a, a hearing in which we just examine 
how probative or prejudicial the evidence of the of the character for untruthfulness is, right? And let's not have this during the trial, right? Let's notify the the victim or the plaintiff or the, the prosecution that you're going to use that that evidence, and then let's have a hearing on that, and let's decide whether you can use that evidence, right? With other uh, sort of tests and scrutinies, right? For for right. those type of evidence, right? So, so, so my understanding of the current rule uh, and what you're saying is that um, that currently judges are supposed to already balance the probative and the prejudicial, um, and uh, and so in some ways, I understand that your solution is suggesting that um, uh, we actually need just like an entirely new rule that uh, for certain types of evidence, uh, judges are just getting it wrong, and that the evidence they're allowing in, the prejudicial, uh, uh, I don't know, weight or value of evidence dramatically outweighs the probative value because, um, you know, prior acts of unrelated lying are simply not probative to the question about whether a victim of sexual or gender-based sexual or gender-based violence is lying about this particular instance of, uh, of violence. Um, so sometimes judges are getting it wrong. Um, and, um, yes. And, and judges are getting it wrong because they, uh, we all participate of the narrative, right? It's, it's right. very difficult if you don't have a training on, on, on specifically on this to like really see that there could be a problem with that type of evidence. No. Right. Yeah. So, so, so sometimes the judge is getting it wrong uh, and we just need to get, have them apply the rule um, more appropriately. Uh, but then other times you're suggesting uh, effectively a new rule with this sort of separate hearing. Um, and I, I guess my question for that is um, right, if judges are just getting it wrong because of, you know, training, because they are, um, uh, they are also, you know, they have these patriarchal prejudices um, that they're importing. Um, how will doing, like, how does sort of moving it from the sort of, you know, a, a kind of a sidebar at trial mm-hmm. to a separate hearing, how does that, how would that result in improvement? Like, why, why will that be better? Yeah, so Tennessee, for example, has uh, has a particular rule that is similar to what I'm proposing, and and you can see in some of the cases, it's it's not directed at this type of cases. It's in general for this type of cases, you need to consider certain factors, right? And it lists the factors more clearly than what Rule 403 will do in terms of excluding relevant ed- evidence for prejudice, right? Which is a very general rule just with the standard, mm-hmm. right? And it, and, it, and it lists certain factors, right? As unfair prejudice, confusing the issues or misleading the jury, but it, it really doesn't hone on what is going on, right? So for example, the Tennessee rule says, if this act is um, uh, far in time, like 10 or five years, you cannot use it, right? So it gives you, a, a clear term of how this evidence of someone lying 10 years ago or five years ago is not relevant at all, right? So, so just a per se exclusion. Do, Sorry, yes. just a per se exclusion. Yeah, okay. So what I do is I list some of the factors, right? So the, and, and some go after the amount and scope of the evidence for character of untruthfulness, how much like 
other events you have that will show that that person has uh, an untruthful character, right? How does the evidence prove that character for untruthfulness? Uh, how remote are those actions, right? Um, the veracity or the falsity of the, the acts or the accusation in this case, right? to weigh all those factors, right? And listen and direct the attention of the judge to more specific things, right? And also moving it from, from, from that hearing to a sidebar, right? Uh, precludes that the judge will be uh, contaminated or will use that information in future rulings, right? Uh, of unrelated other type of evidence, right? Because that might inform what he is doing or she is doing, right? So it's a way to protect that and also deter at the same time by forcing to make this a hearing, trying to deter the defense attorneys from using that evidence, right? Like making it more complicated to them, showing you need to have more than you usually have, right? Because all, the only thing that you have to, to do is to ask the question. You don't have to show documents or any like that. To the contrary, right? The rule doesn't allow to bring extrinsic evidence mm -hmm. to, sh to show whether that person is, is using that, right? So moving that and making it more difficult for them, it's also a way of deterring by itself the use of the evidence, right? Like I, I don't want to go to that knowing that the result is likely that I will not be able to use that evidence. Right. So, so that's also a way of, 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 of using the rule. Right. So my, my, my sense of this is the two takeaways that, that sort of makes this more effective. So one, um, the sort of the, the threshold is higher. Uh, and two, um, uh, and I don't think this was maybe necessarily explicit in the conversation, but it is a separate judge who is going to um, hear the um, the evidence decide about whether the um, the proposed evidence is unduly prejudicial or whether it's probative. Right? That's it's a it's a um, it's a different judge or magistrate that would that will hear that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. And so th those two things combined, you think, sort of uh, will sort of um, will will. will be sufficient to um, to sort of alter the the balance. Yeah, to to start like also making the actors here involved more cognizant of the type of evidence that they're using, right? Uh, and and to move the conversation in different aspects. So separating that, having a specific list of the things that you can use, and how do you have to to prove that, right? Making it more difficult. Uh, it, it, it all tends to like shield this, this type of evidence, right? And not allowing them, the attorneys, to use that in their arguments for whether this person actually is telling the truth, right? You still have all the other types of impeachment that you will have, right? Were you uh, intoxicated that day? Were, were you able to see the person because there was not enough lighting? Or so all those type of, usual impeachments you will be able to use. Right. But the idea that the person just by sitting there is specifically in this type of cases lying right. will be outside of your realm of, of possibilities. Right. Um, great. All right. So I'd like to sort of shift a little bit. So, you know, um, you know, I think in like a footnote, you, you, you explain that, um, that you, you're proposing this in part because, and, and you talked about this already, that uh, you think that sort of abolishing all character for truthfulness evidence is just um, um, 
too far for most states. And so um, I don't usually actually ask this question, but given that you sort of are proposing a more, you know, modest uh, change, I was curious about, you know, you know, why you were more modest. Like, do you, you know, what is the sort of, uh, what is the path to implementation uh, for a change like this, you know, and do you think that sort of the more modest proposal, like it actually has a sort of a more clear path to implementation than a sort of a, um, a more aggressive sort of approach of sort of abolishing all character for truthfulness evidence? Yeah. So, um, first um it's it's been past experience right like i have also like advocate for abolishing civil marriage right and that's that's something when people see institutions that are ingrained in their in their lives it's it's difficult for them to buy in into the idea right so that's one aspect of it the second as you as, as you were mentioning is you have all these states that are using this right and have make the rules to be able to use them um and and a way what i'm trying to see is let's let's try to erode the rule right and let's show how in this particular case which is very poignant how this evidence is being used to deter the the tenants of justice right we have people that might not find redress of their harms because we have a rule that automatically makes them uh, less credible, right? So that condition will open the eyes of to see how this idea of credibility, right? It it's 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 not really what we understand in terms of a trial. So think of of the precedent, right? So uh, the precedent might tell a, a truth, right? And a lot of people will be what hesitant to believe because he has lied in the past, right? But that doesn't say, right? I have a precondition of accepting that what he says is usually untruthful, right? But that doesn't preclude the possibility of that the president telling the truth in a particular moment, right? So we, we should be able to recognize that we have these biases, right, that are embedded in the system, and in the rules that we need to start removing. And I think when we show cases that are more poignant to that, right, things start to move along, right? And what I, what I said also in the article is, you, I know this is a complicated rule. I know that it's also uh, kind of a burden on the system, right? So you don't, you don't have to buy into the whole rule. You can use certain parts of the rule to start adopting that principle and see how it works, right? And let's have also people that are trained for these hearings so that that makes it more effective and more efficient. Uh, so that way we, we can see a progression on how elaborating this rule is something that will end in abolishing the rule itself, right? Like little by little uh, poking holes into it. Yeah. Um, all right, well, you've um, thank you, you've preempted my next question, which was uh, you know um, to push back and ask you to explain like you know why might we not adopt this rule? You, you know, I think you've explained that you know there are sort of uh, certainly costs uh, to doing so, amongst other things. Um, and so, um, I guess with that, I, I will sort of uh, uh, ask you: are there um, are there questions or things about this article you'd like to say that I haven't asked you yet or there's sort of points you'd like to to make that um, um, and I also leave it to you to sort of close out the episode 
Yeah, I, I mean, what what I would say is that um, sometimes we see social movement, right? And this is why I chose the the title to be um, "Evidence Me Too Movement," right? Because we might think that the Me Too movement has been very successful, and it has been right in bringing attention to the issues of the deficit of credibility that victims in this type of cases experience. However, there's also have been a backlash into people believing that this is less important or less real or that victims are falsely accusing more people, right, as, as a way. So sometimes our reality, right, like when we think about the world and we know it's round, but for uh, millennia, right, it was it was not round because you cannot see that from you, from your eyes, right? Our common sense will not tell us that the world is round, right? Our common sense will not tell us that there might be an issue with this rule because we feel that we know when someone is lying that has lied in the past that they will be more prone to lie. So breaking those assumptions, right? And realizing that our common sense could also be wrong, specifically when we are at really high stakes and when the legal system has really enroge into the ability of women to participate in society by removing the violence that they constantly experience, it's something that we should move to accept. I think that's the, for me, the takeaway of the article beyond the the specificities of the rule or discussing this in, in the context of the evidence, right? Like, how can we make sure that our legal system beyond our assumptions that our common sense is well-founded uh, it's actually work, working towards justice yeah, that's great uh well thank you so much for for joining me tonight annabelle thank you thank you matt for having me it's been a pleasure absolutely all right so my guest tonight has been annabelle rosario lebron talking about his uh new article evidence is me too movement uh which is uh, out now in the University of Miami Law Review. Uh, Annabelle is my colleague at Howard University School of Law, where he's an assistant professor of lawyering skills. Thanks so much, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you at work soon. <laughs> Me too. See you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too.
real man. We gonna love each other down to death to our part. Yes, woman. Now somebody's got to go. Yes, baby. Now somebody's got to go. So stop that devil sniffing. You ain't done nothing but lie. You the stomp down good rocker anywhere, anytime. Yes, woman. Now somebody's got to go. Yes, baby. Now somebody's got to go. Yeah. 